Our mindset, how we make sense of ourselves, others and situations, defines so much of our success and satisfaction because it sets the limits of what we can see and solve. In this show, we talk to Margaret Heffernan, who has cast her brilliant eye on a range of topics about how we can make sense of the world better. In one of her most famous books, Willful Blindness, she exposes the nature of what we're willing to ignore and its consequences. Whilst Margaret writes ostensibly business books, a little like Charles Handy, their appeal is so much wider as she brings together a diverse range of ideas from science and sociology and philosophy to unlock our understanding of the challenges facing us. Rest assured, you'll enjoy her company for the next 50 minutes. Hey folks, welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast, the show born from the belief that we need more open, inclusive, collaborative, and deeply accountable leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, John? I am really looking forward to the weekend because I've been suffering jet lag this week, waking up at at two or three o'clock in the morning. So um, despite that, I'm feeling very um, energized by by what's happening. And um, I'm in as a curious, probably with a lot of people, this curious feeling towards what's happening with the coronation this weekend. Mm. Um, not quite sure how to describe that. Um, but yeah, how are you feeling, Scott? I'm feeling a mix. I'm feeling a little tired. Um, it's been kind of a challenging week in different ways, but uh, also filled with anticipation and uh, eagerness and excitement and all the things positive to, to talk to our guest today. I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time. Uh, and today we're joined by Dr. Margaret Heffernan. Uh, Dr. Heffernan uh, produced programs for the BBC for 13 years before moving to the U.S., where she spearheaded multimedia productions for Intuit, The Learning Company, and Standard & Poor's. She was chief executive of Information Corporation uh, Zinezone Corporation, and then ICAST Corporation, and was named one of the top 25 by Streaming Media Magazine and one of the top 100 media executives by The Hollywood Reporter. She's the author of six books, and her third book, Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril, was named one of the most important business books of the decade by the Financial Times. Her TED Talks have been seen by over 12 million people, and in 2015, Ted published Beyond Measure, The Big Impact of Small Changes. And her most recent book, Uncharted, How to Map the Future, was published in 2020. We're going to talk to her a lot about that. And it quickly became a bestseller and was nominated for the Financial Times Best Business Book Award and one of Bloomberg's Best Books of 2021 and was also chosen as the medium best of the best business book. Margaret? Welcome to The Evolving Leader. Thanks so much. It's lovely to be with both of you. Margaret, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling okay. The sun is shining. I'm at home. Those are both two wonderful things. Uh, like you, I'm a bit <clears throat> ambivalent about the the, uh, the coronation, partly because it just seems to go on for so long. <laughs> but um, I'll probably <laughs> dip in and out of it. I'm, I'm curious about it, I, I think. I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind. 
So let's dive in and get a sense of who you are. Since your career as a successful entrepreneur, you've become a prominent thinker um, on a wide range of systemic issues in business and society. If we were at a dinner party and you're introducing yourself to somebody who'd never heard of you, how would you describe who you are and, and your work? Well, it's a very interesting question. I remember having a very long uh, conversation with my husband about this, saying, you know, this problem crops up all the time. I don't know how to describe myself. And we talked about it for several long hours and uh, and we didn't get anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I generally say that... Um, you know, I, I say I'm a writer and then I kind of people generally ask me what I write about and then it kind of evolves from there. Um, and I guess I do that because if I say I'm a professor at the University of Bath, then that puts me into one box. You know, if I say I used to run tech companies, uh, that puts me into another box. If I say I used to work for the BBC, that puts me into another box. And the great thing about saying you're a writer is it doesn't put you into any box at all, really. Um, mm. I'm ambivalent that keeping it open is a brilliant idea, but I haven't—I really haven't come up with anything that seems to me to be a particularly <laughs> adequate answer. I guess I've just—I um, do—I do work that I like. Mm. I like that. Um, so there's so much we could talk to you about, Margaret, um, but I'd like to hone in a little bit on your on the book I mentioned um, in the intro, one of your most well-known books, Willful Blindness. I'm curious, how do you see its central thesis today that we, you know, that we often fail to see what's happening to us considering all the vast changes we've seen since it was published over a decade ago? Well, I wish I could say I wrote about this phenomenon and people came to terms with it and now it's on the wane um, because obviously that mm. was my, my, Die daydream, right? Um, I think, in fact, you know, what's happened is I don't know if it's getting worse, but it's definitely not on the wane. And I, in many ways, I think, you know, what I've done is I've made both myself and I hope other people more alert to it. Um, hmm. It's certainly, I would say, operating on a scale now, you know, that I find pretty terrifying. And it is ubiquitous. So, so I guess, you know, part of me feels, well, I put forward this theory and I think the world has vindicated it beyond my wildest imaginings. I th would prefer to have been wrong. Right? I mm. mean, the thesis is essentially that we are willfully blind to many of the things we most need to pay attention to. And that isn't bad people. It isn't specially inept people. It is all of us. And I think mm. that thesis is vindicated daily. And there are all kinds of um, physical reasons for it, psychological reasons for it, cultural reasons for it. And, and then there are also huge organizational drivers of it. So uh, towards the end of the book, instead of thinking, how do we get rid of this? Because I am entirely convinced that we won't. And, and actually, mm -hmm. we probably might not want to. Um, I asked a slightly different question, which is what are the conditions in which willful blindness is most likely to flourish? Because if we could reduce those conditions, then we would probably be in a world that was functioning at a better level. So hmm. I guess you might say my ambition has become a little bit more modest or realistic, 
I am absolutely persuaded that we can reduce the risk that willful blindness clearly represents. Um, but I don't think we will ever reach a stage a stage where we're not willfully blind just because it has it bestows certain advantages, and that's probably why an aberrant behavior has persisted for so long. Um, I think it is a little bit more recognized now than it used to be. Um, I think the leadership question is how far leaders are prepared to get rid of the alibi, which is, no, it's just bad people, and accept hmm. that how their organizations function um, can either exacerbate it or reduce it. I mean, from, from my experience, um, the topic has become, there's a greater awareness of this, this idea thanks yeah. to your work. And um, I think what's so powerful about the book and was that it avoided being a polemic around the topic. Oh, I mean, clearly you. it's a huge issue, and, and it, but it didn't fall into the kind of condemning thing. It was, it, it's an inherent quality of human nature. Yeah. Um, and the, there's a whole host of factors, you know, cognitive bias, the predicting brain, our relationship with power. power. There's a whole host of, of social and, and uh, inherent dynamics in people. Wow. So if you were talking to a group of leaders today, what, what can you give us a kind of checklist of the things that you'd ask them to confront to raise their, uh, 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 their awareness and to help them prevent the conditions for it flourishing? Yeah. So I guess I think about this a little bit like an onion, which is all of these things are nested within each other. Um, I mean, you know, I think willful blindness so in the book, I start with, I go on a, in a very deliberate way from the most personal, if you like, to the most kind of universal. So it absolutely starts with our preference for people like ourselves. To the degree that we're surrounded by people like ourselves, we will keep seeing the same things and not seeing the same things. And that isn't anybody's fault. Biases aren't really controllable. I think that temporary fad for anti-bias training was just ridiculous. Um, our brains are designed to work this way because it's really, really useful to have a brain that looks for patterns. Um, mm. And it, it likes patterns because it knows if something is familiar, then you don't have to investigate it as thoroughly. It's a shortcut because we don't have the cognitive capacity to interrogate every single thing we encounter every single minute of every single day. Um, the downside is we give an easy pass to what's familiar and what's most familiar to us is us. So we're much easier going on people, attitudes, books, movies, places that are familiar to us. We don't check them out as thoroughly. So diversity becomes, you know, I think importantly, not just an issue of social justice, but an issue of cognitive enrichment in an organization or a community. Um, I think there's a second piece, which is to do with mental models. We all have mental models of how the work, the world works. You can't not have them. Mm -hmm. Mental models tell you what you have to pay attention to and what you can safely ignore. The downside of, of mental models is that they attract confirming data and repel or marginalize or trivialize disconfirming data. Um, and they can easily become ideologies, which is what Alan Greenspan interestingly called them. 
And he said everybody has an ideology. You have to. And when challenged by the U.S. Senate about, you know, how he got the banking crisis so spectacularly wrong, he said, well, there was a flaw in my ideology. Um, I would agree with him. I think he was right. I think we might argue about the size of the flaw. Um, but, but I think we all have a mental construct about how the world works, and they're very helpful until they're not. Um, mm. It's also the case, and, and, and this, I think, is really so basic, and because it's basic, I think people might find it less interesting, but I find it fantastic because it's, it's the thing you can do most about. Thinking is a physical activity. We don't experience it as that because we can't see it happening. We can't feel it happening. But it's a physical activity in our brain. And there are certain things that will make it work worse. And one of those things is fatigue. The tired brain operates in a radically different way from a fresh, healthy brain. And so when we don't get enough sleep, when we put on people under enormous pressure, when we make them work very long days, day after day after day after day under enormous stress, our brain will not function as well. Engineers understand this. You know, they talk about asset integrity, which means you service and repair things before they break. But I think in organizational life, we're much less mindful that the thing that's going to break is people's capacity to think. And in every ind industrial um, accident, you see this, which is as people get more tired or if they try to multitask, then they make mistakes. Um, their productivity goes down and there are often, you know, quite catastrophic consequences. This absolutely is within our capacity to change. Um, I think there are interesting questions to be asked about why we don't. But, you know, since I wrote Willful Blindness what, 10 years ago, the evidence is only mounted. I mean, it's just enormous now, which is you can't multitask. If you don't get about eight hours sleep a night, you won't function well your brain will quickly reach a state which is equivalent to being over the alcohol limit when you're driving. And if you do that, your productivity will go down and your capacity to wreak havoc will go up. Um, mm. Then you go into organizational life. You know, I like nerdy data points, one of the most striking of which in that book is that if you ask executives, do you have issues and concerns at work that you don't voice, 85% of them will say yes. So what this yeah. means as a leader is that you have to assume that there are things on people's minds that they are not articulating. And saying my door is always open won't make a big difference. Personally, I don't think talking about psychological safety is going to make a big difference. You have to work very, very, very hard and consistently to create an environment in which people genuinely feel that their questions, challenges, dissenting voices are going to be welcomed. And um, How do we I do think that? we tend. Well, I think, first of all, you have to demonstrate it. 
mean, in the companies I ran, I quite often had people who'd worked for me before and people and they and new employees would see that when they challenged me in a meeting, for example, or disagreed with something that they weren't shouted down. So you have to demonstrate it all the time and you have to surround people, surround yourself with people who get it and will do it. Um, personally, I think if you don't do that, if it's always in your office or it's always via email, nobody's going to believe you. Um, mm -hmm. I also think that there are ways you can foment dissent within really crit critical meetings and decisions. And you have to do that. You have to assign roles to people. Like your job is to tell me all the reasons we can't do this. Or your job is to tell me um, who's going to be most damaged by this. Or your job is to tell me what single piece of information might change our mind. Really to probe and enrich the scrutiny in really important decisions. I also think that when people do dare to come up with raise a problem or an issue and it gets resolved, which very often happens, you have to tell that story. I've done a lot of work with the National Health Service. There's a fantastic woman at North Staffordshire Hospital, um, Helen e. Donnelly, who has really pioneered this work and constantly producing a newsletter with her CEO saying this problem was issued, uh, escalated, complained about, and eventually this is how we fixed it. And people have in their minds an idea that, that well, there's this problem and everybody knows about it. They're right about that. Mm. And they think it's not being fixed because nobody knows how to fix it or because nobody wants to fix it. They're often wrong about that. Um, but, of course, as long as they believe that, they don't have to do anything. It's incredibly important to tell the story that when somebody does put their hand up and say, this isn't right, or we could do better than this, to write the story and communicate the narrative that when people speak up, good things happen. Because the whistleblower myth is so profound, and it's such great drama that it's much more powerful and the happy ending. So you have that really has to be a kind of iconic story within an organization. Leaders have to accept that by and large, we are as human beings prone to being obedient. If we're asked to do something mad, bad, or stupid, there is a you know more than 50% chance that people will. So we have to be very, very thoughtful about what we ask people to do. We are by and large conformists because we're social creatures. So if other people are doing something bad, the chances are very high that we'll join in. Mm. And the more we inject into organizational lives huge levels of bureaucracy, which essentially depersonalizes work, so my sense of my personal moral investment in the work is reduced because I'm just following the rules, the more bureaucracy you have, the less it feels like it's me doing the work. So that's a very hazardous situation, which will give rise to willful blindness. And the more you put in place lots of goals and targets and incentives, the less people will query whether or not they're doing the right thing or the best thing for the organization. 
And the steeper the hierarchy is, the more people will know that their prime job is to please the person above them, at which point they will very frequently lose their capacity for independent thought. So I would say those are all, you know, if you see any of those, those are all likely to suggest willful blindness. It's very rare to see only one. You know, these things tend to cluster. And you'll often find hierarchical organizations are very bureaucratic, right? They're very um, competitive. They may be very conformist. All of this is true in the NHS, for example, to a great degree. And so you know you're likely to find high degrees of willful blindness. I love the um, the storytelling in all of your books. You weave mm-hmm. um, really good personal insights and the latest research and these great stories. You tell um, how the CEO of Tata sets his day up by not reading his newspaper in the back of the limo. I think there's poor yeah. word quality as part of that, but he sits up front with the driver asking him questions. What are the kind of behaviors have you seen from leaders who are great at kind of eliminating or reducing willful blindness? Well, definitely talking to the people they don't have to talk to. It's really important. Um, I mean, I love this, the story of the, the Tata CEO too, because um, I think we all know from personal experience that when you talk to somebody not like you about how they see the world, you learn quite a lot of new stuff. Now, this takes a lot more effort. Right. And I'm sure there are many days in which we'd all like to sit at the back of the car and just tune out. But it is really important. I mean, as a CEO myself, I used to spend a lot of time talking to people who were very low down in the organization. Not about anything in particular, but trying to get to know them and, you know, get a sense of their mood, get a sense of the atmosphere, you know, and a sense of how they talked about working there. Now, I'm not an idiot. I know when people are sucking up to me. But if you do this on a pretty regular basis, after a while they stop because it's too tedious and you start to get to know people. Um, As I say, I've always had people in my companies who I knew would come and tell me, Margaret, something bad is going on. For the most part, having said that, I can remember at one point I had to let someone go because of, uh, various things that they had done, which were very subpar. And only afterwards did I discover that actually he had been sexually harassing younger members of staff. And I did not know that. And when I was told, I was aghast, and I said, you know, anybody who knows me, and all of you know me, would have known I wouldn't tolerate this for a moment. Why didn't anybody tell me? And they said, well, you just looked so busy. So, you know, that was very, it made me think, okay, so you may be very busy, but if you look too busy, then that's going to silence people. You know, people will be blind out of, or you will be left blind because of their compassion. And I think there is, for all that we talk a lot about authenticity in leadership, There is also a big part of it, which is you really have to keep yourself together. And you can kick the cat in private, 
But, um, you know, when you're with your team, um, you need to make people feel that they can say anything to you and you can take it. Hmm. Building on this idea, let's turn to um, your book, Beyond Measure, in 2015. Hmm. Um, Because in it, you describe how transforming a company is often a matter of making small systemic changes Mm. that empower people to speak up and collaborate and share. Um, Pull that idea apart for us a little bit. Well, um, you know, I was very struck by the fact that something like 50 to 80 percent of cultural transformation programs don't work. That's a, you know, that's a very big number. I'm very struck by the fact that every time I talk to companies about transformation, you know, they have these juggernaut pro, uh, programs that go on for years and everybody forgot, forgets what they were for and why they were initiated in the first place. I'm very struck by how quickly everybody gets bogged down in theories of change. You know, does it start with the individual? Does it start with the organization? And they end up in this kind of intellectual quagmire from which they never really recover. And... Um, and I thought, well, this is all this is all kind of interesting, but actually, you know, if you're running a business, you need to get shit done, right? And <laughs> uh, and every great vision, you know, it it starts out with just a lot of steps. So we need to kind of demystify this and make it less abstract. And I th- I mean, I genuinely believe that in the end, most people working in an organization have a pretty good idea of what's wrong with it. And have a lot of very good ideas about what would be better, not what would be perfect, what would be better. And if you can convene those people around some kind of structure and discuss how you're going to address the stuff that really doesn't work and find champions for those ideas. In other words, an idea is worth nothing unless somebody's actually prepared to drive it. Then you can come up with a plan. And then you don't have to sell it to anybody because people tend to be quite keen on the ideas that they came up with themselves. And they have an integrity, which, you know, the the consultants to cultural transformation program does not have. A, because they live there in the organization and B, they're prepared to live with what they've suggested. And I don't think this is foolproof or perfect but I think it's better than the morass into into which I've seen companies fall for years. I have huge faith, and so far I've not been let down, by the capacity of the workforce to identify and solve its own problems. And I think frequently bureaucracy, hierarchy, competitiveness gets in the way. And I think if we could chuck some of that stuff out, even if only for a period, you can get really quite um, powerful change going on. And then I think it can become self-sustaining, which is when people see that, okay, if I have an idea, we can try it and we try it and it works or it works a bit better, you know, if we tweak it a bit. Then people keep having ideas because it's worth it. And then they have better and better ideas. So I think it has a kind of um, sustainability built into it that's really fundamental. Because 
you know, the problem, one of the problems endemic in change programs is the notion that, well, at some point, the programs are going to be done. And then we can sit back and relax and, and forget about it. And that isn't how life happens. And it isn't how we happen. You know, we change till the moment we die. Right? We are constantly changing as human beings. Our brains are constantly changing. So I just think, you know, I wrote that book for two reasons. One was because um, Ted, which published it, wanted books that could be read in a single sitting. And I thought it was a really interesting technical challenge to write something very short and a good challenge. But I also wrote it because I thought we just have to reconceptualize change. You know, it's just become this gorilla and um, and we need to kind of go back to basics. It's really refreshing. In uh, Uncharted, I love this sentence, being prepared in an age of uncertainty can intensify the craving for models. It's coming back to your conversation mm. about mental models. If the old model doesn't work, what's the new one? And you, you talk about the whole flawed thinking there. Can you build on that for us? Yeah, I think that... Um I mean, I'll go back a little bit. I think there's been an awful lot in the writing about business and management that has aspired to a science. Um, bear in mind that schools of management grew out of engineering schools, right? So there is a sort of intellectual kinship there. Um, and in our and and you see the infiltration of scientific language into management's language and so on and so forth. Um, and I think it's been really unhelpful because management is not a science. <laughs> you can't do controlled experiments. No two companies are the same. No two days are the same. You know, it just doesn't work. But because we have this sort of lust for scientific certainty, um, we keep pretending it's there when it isn't. And we keep trying to come up with things that offer the same degree of certainty as a good scientific theory does. Now, you know, a good scientific theory has predictive capability. If I, you know, if I let go of this pencil, the theory of gravity predicts that it will fall. And it will, right? It falls. We have no theories of change with that predictive capability. None. Hmm. So, you know, my argument is essentially we have to stop looking for this thing that doesn't exist and understand, get under the skin of uncertainty and learn to live with it in a much more open and creative way. I think it has a lot to teach us. But as long as we keep looking for these perfect paradigms, these perfect frameworks, I think we're going to take as real something that's fundamentally a fantasy. What, what do we replace that with to try and I, make sense of that situation? I think what it means is we have to accept that a great deal in life is uncertain and it always will be. I think it's helpful to understand why. Um, but also to see that uncertainty means, implies, that life is not determined. What that means is all sorts of stuff is possible. What it means is that uncertainty is the dark side 
of opportunity. And therefore, when you're in a situation which is uncertain, what you want to do is not try to force it into a framework which you think can contain it but won't. What you need to do is think, okay, in this very uncertain, ambiguous situation, what are all my options? What are all the things I might be able to do? That gives you choices. And it shows you where in your complex system it's worth poking and trying out change to see what happens. So it moves you more creatively into an experimental mindset. It will give you insights that you simply cannot get any other way. And it moves you out of a rigidly linear mindset as well. So I'm not saying that I think uncertainty is a ton of fun. You know, we've all had a big crash course in uncertainty with two years of pandemic, and it would be uh, certainly lacking in my in compassion if I thought that. Of course, a great deal of uncertainty is excruciating. It's a lot less excruciating when you say, okay, this is where we are. This is the stuff we know. This is the stuff we don't know. There's probably lots of other stuff we don't know. But given everything we do know, what might we be able to do? And then look at those things and say, okay, let's assess them for how risky various things are. Let's assess them for what possible benefit they might be most likely to bestow. And let's start trying some of these things. And instead of being paralyzed by uncertainty, actually start to get ahead of the game. And... You know, I think the most beautiful example of that, I mean, there are a lot of examples in my book, but, you know, really one of the most beautiful examples of that is the Wellcome Trust setting up the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness in 2017. This is when they decided, well, they knew that epidemics are always with us. They have been throughout history. That if you have vaccine candidates ready and waiting you have an unbelievable advantage. And therefore, they decided to start investing in new vaccines and new vaccine platforms before there was any pandemic on the horizon. And that doesn't mean that they they tried to create a vaccine for every disease on Earth, because obviously that would be absurd and expensive. They, they were quite choiceful in thinking, which are the diseases that have the greatest likelihood of creating an epidemic or pandemic, not all diseases do, and which would have the greatest impact on human life. So likelihood and impact, that hugely reduces your list of diseases. And then you choose which ones to start with. We did not start developing vaccines for coronavirus in 2020. We started in 2017. If we'd started earlier, it would have been better, but we were not starting from a cold, you know, from a standing start. So I think this is a really brilliant way to think through uncertainty. And, and you know, let's be absolutely honest here. This isn't my invention, right? I stumbled across this when I was at interviewing the head of the, of the, uh, Welcome Trust, 
Eliza Manningham Buller because she had previously been head of MI5. Now, the intelligence services are also great examples of organizations that absolutely have got to make decisions before all the information's in. So they're very practiced at this kind of thinking. And it was an absolutely accidental, overheard comment about this new coalition that prompted me to say, perk up my ears and say, wow, what's that? Can I find out more? Right? So again, you know, if you aren't, if you aren't so determined to only do what you have to do, only read what you have to read, only hear the answers to the questions you've asked. If you aren't highly alert and sensitive to the stuff that's going on around you, then you're going to be willfully blind. You keep your mind open and your ears open. And if you're an inveterate earwigger, as I am, it's incredible the stuff you stumble upon um, talking to interesting people with interesting minds. Now, the intelligence services are really fascinating because, you know, as, as Eliza Manning and Buller said, you know, if you act too soon, you may absolutely blow your cover. And if you ask to, if you act too late, then obviously a tragedy's happened. So you have to get mm. used to the fact that you're never going to have all the information you need. So you have to start thinking again about options and contingencies and risk and at what point must something be done? But if you sit as many, many business leaders do, waiting for an unequivocal answer, you're going to be behind. Mm. And I would say that, you know, the reason business leaders often do wait is because they've been brought up um, in a school of management which says the absolute overriding principle of a great organization is efficiency. Hmm. If you invest in things you might never need, if you act before you have to, that's not efficient. But in uncertainty, efficiency is never going to be your friend because it's not going to leave you with any margins to respond. Intellectual margins, financial margins. So you have to get used to the idea that where there is uncertainty, you cannot afford to judge everything by efficiency alone. Hmm. And I think that's very, very hard for business leaders for whom this has been their North Star their entire career. Yeah. Yeah, so this relationship between uncertainty and predictions is fascinating because you know leaders are trying to make predictions about the future but you're saying we have to stay open and acknowledge that predictions you know we can't put too much faith in them they're not reliable in and of themselves and i'm curious your thoughts on what role is machine learning playing into our relationship with predictions and what are some of the risks that you see well, I think our faith in them makes us a lot stupider, right? Because mm. we've sort of outsourced thinking to machines. And of course, you know, thinking is just like running or cycling. The more you do of it, the better you get. 
So this notion that, you know, the machine will give you the answer means that your brain is getting very, very flabby indeed. Um, but it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you will know, having read the book, that, um, you know, I've looked a lot at the, at the science of forecasting and the people who really understand forecasting know that it is always, always uncertain. But I think there was a beautiful example the other day. I was driving to the train station to go into London and the news headline was, you know, today is the day when um, the UK's inflation figure will fall back into single digits. That was the news. A lot of the news is prediction. It's not news. It's not stuff that's happened yet. But anyway, that was the news. Today was the day that inflation was going to fall below 10%. And as I was driving home after my meetings in London, the news was... The inflation rate has stubbornly stuck above 10%. <laughs> now, it is undoubtedly yeah. the case that the shorter the window for forecasting, the more accurate it's going to be, right? A 10-day weather forecast isn't worth anything. A five-day is mm, okay. A one-day is pretty good. Um, but, you know, so the closer you get, it's just like um, – GPS, the closer you get, the more accurate it becomes because it's constantly evolving in the light of new information. But here you have a forecast that is wrong within eight hours. That's uncertainty for sure. But where did those where did the forecast come from? Well, the forecast came from huge amounts of computing of data. Nothing wrong with it but it turned out not to be true. Why? Well, any number of reasons. The algorithm wasn't perfect. The data set wasn't perfect. The time span wasn't perfect. Or maybe, just maybe, the model, which is derived from history, doesn't know what's going to happen today. So mm. models, algorithms are all based on history. It's not bad. It's the only place there is any data, right? There's no data for the future because right. it hasn't happened yet. But it's always going to be within a margin of error. And the problem may be, I mean, in the case of the inflation figures, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's just a kind of, from my mind, a rather funny story. But if you're starting to make decisions that really matter, then I think the problem is that we place faith in numbers way beyond the faith we place in words. We know words are fungible, but we think, but 56 is 56, right? But what we don't ask ourselves is, what lay behind that number? What are all the assumptions behind that number? Now, I think it's really interesting that, you know, people who work in prediction, you know, like people in insurance or people in financial services, they do understand that all of these things are estimates, but they aren't sold to us as estimates. They're sold to us as certainties, and we crave certainty, so our little doubt button doesn't get switched on, as it were. And I'm not saying forecasters are bad. I think most of them are doing their best job. We just have to bring a great deal of doubt to what we read. We have to think hard about where is it coming from? What's it based on? Is it plausible? You know, we get all of these um, predictions about what's going to happen in 2035. And you think, 
it's impossible to forecast that far out. I mean, if you look at the greatest data set in the world, which is climate data, you know, we can see that the climate is changing. We know the physics well enough to understand the consequences of that change. But nobody in the climate world is saying exactly which forests are going to catch fire this summer. Nobody's saying exactly which harvests are going to be ruined by rain because they know that they can't. So what they're doing is they're giving us a broad picture on the basis of which we can and should make decisions. But if you ask them, should I buy this house, which is, you know, on the California coast, will there be wildfires? Don't expect an answer that is lock solid, gold plated, bound to be true. It might be true and it might not. And it might be true this year and next year and next year and next year. And then, oops, it's not. Hmm. Hi, this is Emma Sinclair, business psychologist, occasional co-host and fan of the Evolving Leader podcast. There are now over 100 episodes with an incredible list of guests encompassing a broad range of disciplines, all handpicked by us to help you, our audience, understand and overcome your greatest leadership challenges. We have so much more to come. So wherever you get your podcasts, please subscribe, share, rate and review. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Given everything that you have been thinking about and learnt about yourself and about the world in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, if you could go back to Margaret Heffernan at 20 <laughs> and have, you know, a couple of hours with yourself, what advice would you give yourself as a future entrepreneur and leader? Wow, that's a very hard question. Um, I think I'd certainly say don't sweat the small stuff. You know, I think in my 20s, like most people, I really agonized about stuff that didn't matter very much. Um, I think I was really incredibly lucky that after doing two really crap jobs, I got a third crap job with a great boss. (laughs) Um, And um, who then just pretty much let me do whatever I wanted. And that really was luck. And he was a genius, really a genius. Um, And it's hugely informed my sense of what good leadership looks like. I think I would say experiment. I know very few people who are in careers they love that did out of university what they thought they'd do. You know, they tried what they thought they'd like, they didn't, they tried something else, they tried something else, then they found something they loved, or they found an organization that they love, or they found a fantastic mentor. So I'd say experiment, you know, when you come out of university, you don't know anything about the world of work. So that's fine. So, you know, go away from the stuff you discover you don't like and move towards the stuff you do like and think a lot about what it's telling you. Expect to change. You know, I know everybody says quite rightly that, you know, very few people are going to be in the same career all their lives. Well, some people are quite a lot more than you might think. But if you get to a point where you think, actually, this no longer interests me, that's fine. Change. 
get good at change. The only way to get good at change is change quite a lot. Hmm. Move countries, move towns, move professions, you know, have a broad, diverse range of friends. You know, try a different diet, try a different sport. You know, we are going to have to change so much in the next 30, 50 years. And the only way to get good at it is to practice it. So, you know, don't don't let yourself get too rigid. I think that's the main thing. I remember um, years ago, probably 2002, 2003, I went to hear James Lovelock speak um, because I had quite very young children and I was very alarmed, as I still am, by what the what the climate crisis would mean for their lives because I knew they were going to be at the rough end of it and, you know, because I'll be dead by then. And so after his talk, I said, what should we be teaching our children? Because, you know, to them is going to fall millions of refugees. You know, huge swathes of the world made uninhabitable. You know, civil dis- dis- sort of uh, civil disturbance, political upheaval. You know, all the horror that climate change brings in its way. What should our children be learning to help them cope with this? And it was one of the biggest disappointments of my life because he said, "I don't know." And I thought, "That's not good enough. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you?" Um, But, you know, what it did is it made me think, okay, so Margaret, think about your own question. And I think the answer I came up with was you learn it, your children need to learn to be really great improvisers, to be really flexible, being able to change their plans at the last moment. They need a really broad range of skills, you know, not just a very narrow kind of technical expertise. They really need to be able to communicate and to work very, very well with other people. Uh, And they have to have an insatiable love of learning because everything they're going to need to know, they aren't going to learn at school. They're going to learn it as they go along. They're going to have to pick it up. And, um, And I still feel this very passionately that actually the one thing every school has to teach their kids is a love of learning. I don't think many kids, mm. many schools do do that. I know some do. I know some school systems do. But we have to get over this idea that I see often, which is, okay, you learn to get the grades, you get the grades to get into university, you get the university degree to get the job, and then, phew, thank God, it's over. Mm-hmm. Don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> No, no, no. You go to school to learn how to learn, and then you do it for the rest of your life. Amen. Um, Margaret, what's next for you? What are you working on? (laughs) Well, I'm trying to write a book that isn't like anything I've ever written before, um, which is proving much harder than I thought it was going to be. And and I just keep telling myself, well, the thing you know about change is you just have to not give up. So I'm, have ta- I'm having a very, very stiff dose of my own medicine right now. Um, and it's scary because, you know, maybe I can't write this book. Who knows? 
but I know if I give up, I can't. So I plug away and sometimes I change my methodology and and sometimes I think, oh, maybe I'll write a book like the kinds of books I know how to write. And then I think, no, no, stop it. <laughs> um, so I'm doing that. I'm doing a lot of work in, on climate in all sorts of weird different guises. I'm working with the university where I teach. I'm working with my local community where I live. I'm working with um, schools. And um, and I've done and I wrote a play for the BBC for Radio Four about um, climate activists, hmm. and that was very successful. And then I developed it further and did a stage version, and that's been quite successful. So now I'm trying to figure out if there's some way we can give that a longer life. Uh, I don't know. I am doing much riskier things than I've ever done before. Is actually what I'm doing, hmm. and. It's very frightening, and um, and I don't know if any of them will work out or not. But I do have this old-fashioned belief that you can't write about this stuff if you don't do it. So all this stuff we talked about today, I'm doing, and there are good days and bad mm -hmm. days. And you caught me on a really good day. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> I mean, I think... We've been really looking forward to this because you have been uh, an inspiring voice. Um, yeah. And, you know, your TED Talks, the, you know, you, you've come along and spoken to some of my clients in the past and it's been great. Um, the voice in your books is incredibly um, strong. You know, it, it, it brings a kind of mastery to the topics, but also it, it's, it has hope in it as well. It's not a, as I said, it's not a polemic. Um, so it's really interesting to hear at this stage in your career in life that you're, you're kind of reinventing yourself and putting yourself into a fairly high degree of vulnerability. And it sounds like that's making you feel very alive. Um, what Someday. else does that bring to your life? What, why more? Why, well, it's, it's kind of up and down, but you know, what, how does that affect your, your wider life, do you think? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've, I suppose you could say, you know, I've re reinvented myself several times. So... Um, yeah. I think the people who know me aren't wildly surprised. Uh, my experience is everything takes longer than you think it's going to take. It's always harder than you think it's going to be. And you just have to keep yeah. going. Um, so that's what I try to do. I mean, I know if you quit, you know, that nothing will happen, right? So the odds are definitely better if you keep going. Well, as I predicted, this was going to be a brilliant conversation, and it was. And uh, I could I could talk to you for hours. Um, I would love to have you back on at some point. Um, and for our listeners, uh, if you haven't read Margaret's books, you know, go buy all of them right now. In fact, we'll wait. We can we can just wait while you do that right now. Hold on. <laughs> no, seriously, get them. Um, you won't be disappointed, as you can tell, just with some of the insights you heard today. And Margaret, thank you so much for your time today really appreciate it thank you margaret well thank you both for a really wonderful conversation it's a wonderful way to end the week and to start a long bank holiday weekend until next time folks remember the world is evolving are you are you